just having some technical difficulties, of course, today of all days. How are you? <laughs> good, good. Thanks. It's great to be here. It's really nice to meet you in person. I've been following you for a really long time. Um, obviously, everybody in the industry is a huge fan of your, you know, your work and your ability to, you know, speak the truth and, you know, and advocate for vaping as, you know, um, yeah, I was watching an interview the other day with you, um, I think from like nine years ago, where you were discussing, you know, it, it was a godsend for people that didn't have the ability to, you know, quit. And um, also that it was, you know, the innovation of the future, you know, that, and, and so nine years later, you know, did you mm -hmm. think that we'd be sitting here still fighting as hard as we are to have access to these products? No, I did not. <laughs> I could never have even dreamed that we would be in a situation where essentially the FDA, you know, a public health agency uh, who's in charge of protecting public health would be decimating, completely decimating the entire market yeah. of these products. It just, that never occurred to me. No, me neither. I don't think it occurred to any of us, um, you know, and I think, you know, you recently too, like I, I saw criticized the New Hampshire Department of Public Health um, for, I think, making a mistake that many public health departments have been making for calling vapes tobacco products. Um, and you asked them simply why tobacco control element of public health has suddenly lost sight of the concept of harm reduction. Um, I know that that really bothers me and, and a lot of other advocates, you know, um, that are dealing with these situations, you know, can you understand why they're doing the things that they're doing and saying the things that they're saying? So, you know, this has been a, a I have to say, it's been about a 12-year effort going on here, uh, really 14 years, because really in 2009 was when, was when their positions first started become, to become kind of incomprehensible to me. Um, so this has been a 14-year mission, and I can say that I, I still haven't gotten to the bottom of it. But I, but I do have some, I do have some uh, observations, let's say. Um, first, even before we get to that, I just want to say that the, you know, what the New Hampshire Department uh, of Public Health was doing, it's more than just that they weren't embracing harm reduction. It's that they were lying. They weren't telling the truth. So even if you are totally against harm reduction and, you know, you just think e-cigarettes are the worst thing and that's going to get youth to smoke and, and it's just, it's a terrible public health intervention, you can still tell the truth. You can still say that electronic cigarettes don't contain tobacco. That's not, you know, it's not inherent in being, say, anti-harm reduction to also be a liar. You know, it just, it doesn't, you don't have to do both. So, um, so I think it's a little bit more than just, you know, a viewpoint being against harm reduction, but, you know, hypotheses. Um, so number one is just, I think the fact that it's in order for the anti-smoking movement to have become as strong as it was to essentially knock down big tobacco, they had to be, we had to become, um, almost zealots there. Uh, you get a lot of zealotry. And that's not a bad thing in and of itself. You know, you need to have zealots to win any battle. And so politically, we won because we had a lot of zealotry. And, and policymakers need to see that there are f people out there who are going to fight and fight and never never go away. And, and that eventually will, you know, they'll come around um, to voting on your side. So a lot of the elements that made the tobacco, the anti tobacco or really the anti-smoking movement strong are the same elements that when taken to an extreme 
um, become problematic, especially when the issues get more subtle and when you already kind of have achieved victory in a lot of ways. And then people just don't stop. That zealotry needs to go somewhere. And I, so I think that's a big part of it. I think it's ideological. Um, I think another huge part of it is just is economic. I think that the during the last maybe 10 years prior to, um, let's say, to 2009, um, the anti-tobacco groups were really starting to get immense amount of funding from the uh, pharmaceutical industry and particularly from the companies making nicotine re, uh, nicotine replacement products and so I think their their butter their they knew where their bread was being buttered and and they you know and even if it was subconscious I'm not, I don't I think a lot of this is subconscious the influence the bias you know, even if they weren't consciously thinking, okay, we're being paid by big pharma, so therefore we have to protect them. Subconsciously, it has an effect on you when you're, when you're being, I mean, that's why companies do sponsorship. They don't do it out of the goodness yeah. of their heart. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. So, um, so I think that's a second factor. I think that, that um, we, the movement became very tied to big pharma and, you know, I think had had the pharmaceutical companies came up with the very same idea, I think the reaction would have been completely different. You know, if if say Merck or or Pfizer or yeah. Johnson and Johnson, you know, had come out with this idea and said, "Hey, we're we've we've just discovered this new product that delivers nicotine, but it's really clean otherwise, and and it really can help smokers get off you know, cigarettes and." And yeah, it's they're still addicted to nicotine, but but it's much safer. I think it's possible that we might have embraced that coming from yeah. a pharmaceutical company, but having it come from what was assumed to be the tobacco industry, which ended, which of course was wrong initially, uh, but nevertheless, the, the truth didn't matter. It was it was just an industry. Um, so I think that's a second thing. It's just the way they developed coming from um, from an industry rather than from, say, within the pharmaceutical companies. Um, yeah. I think that's a big a big thing. And the third thing is I think that – well, two other things. The third thing is that, um, as we were talking a little bit before the show, um, you pay a price to tell the truth. You know, I definitely paid a price in terms of my career um, in being willing to just come out and say something that was not part of the mainstream. Even something as simple as, you know, hey, guys – I think these products are safer than cigarettes. Um, I was immediately attacked. I was accused of being a tobacco industry, um, being on the tobacco industry. Shill. Payroll. Yeah, like all, yeah, yeah. Um, I was kicked off listservs um, that I had been writing and writing nothing other than scientific facts. I wasn't um, saying things that weren't true. Um, kicked off listservs, um, essentially, um, uh, uh, embargoed from conferences, not not being allowed to go to scientific conferences that I had presented every single year, and then all mm -hmm. of a sudden they make a few comments, and all of a sudden they're not interested in what I have to say. Um, so 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 I think yeah, a big factor. Um, the third factor here is really that it's just difficult for it. it, it the movement is set up so that it suppresses dissent, and so there's kind of a group think mentality. And so anyone who says something is really risking 
their career and, and, and money because grants, you're not going to get grants as easily. Um, and so it's, it suppresses dissent. And then I fourth, think the fourth factor is um, that these organizations need money like anyone else. These are nonprofits uh, for the most part, or uh, almost for, for almost entirely, these are nonprofit organizations. They need money. And let's face it, it's a really good marketing pitch to go out and say, hey, look at all the cherry and strawberry e-cigarettes that our kids are, are using. You know, Don't you want to contribute to this to fight this? And it's a great marketing. I mean, if you were creating a marketing pitch and didn't care about ethics, well, actually, that's what you would do, right? You would right. have, you know, and campaign for tobacco for kids would jump on top of that and say, hey, you know, their kids are, the tobacco industry is peddling gummy bear e-cigarettes to youth. That doesn't sound good. That's a, that's a funny a fundraiser. I mean, I would contribute money to that if it were true. Right. Um, so, you know, I think that's, a, that's the fourth part of this is that um, it's great for their campaigning and the, their fundraising. And it's just, I think that it's not as glamorous to be able to say, you know, look, tobacco industry, it, there are some vapor, vaping companies that are going a little too far and we need to tone down their rhetoric. But on the whole, the industry is okay, but we need to, you know, these things are good for adults, but not, we need to balance their, it's just, that's much too complicated and nuanced a marketing message. And if you're about getting money, then you're not going to go there. Doesn't give you a big flashy headline to grab everybody's attention either when you when you go that route. So yeah, I mean, I think exactly. that it's, and I think too, you know, I mean, I we obviously appreciate you, you know, standing up for what we feel is right, and then that's why you know we all do what we do as advocates. You know, none of us are getting paid to do this. Um, we're all doing it because we experience this success with vaping, and we feel like if we stop, who's going to? combat this misinformation coming from public health to help smokers. Cause at the end of the day, we really just want smokers to have the same successes that we had. And we really don't think it's fair that they're being scared away. I mean, perfect example is that I was at my you know community pool this weekend and two people that were smoking, one of them that I had gotten on an e-cigarette for years and was successful with an e-cigarette. Now her new, a new man in her life is a smoker and is, has convinced her that it's worse. And oh, so no. he was literally yelling at me at the pool oh, because I'm vaping. And, and, and she's like, I was fully off of, of cigarettes and on those things. And I said, well, in, in all honesty, how do you feel now that you're back smoking? And she said, I feel awful. And I said, well, did you feel awful when you were vaping? And she said, no. I said, well, then there's your proof right there. Let's start there and, and start having a conversation. And so, of course, I spent my entire afternoon and my day off having a conversation with them about, you know, why I'm like, listen, first things first, combustion. Like, let's just, let's just talk about combustion. The fact that there's no way that that can be safer. And, and I think that kind of grabbed his attention and got him to start listening to me. But like, this is the, you know, the, the issues that public health has created is this, huge uphill battle for now people that vape when people really wouldn't pay attention to me either way or, or they would congratulate me for quitting smoking. And now they're basically telling me that what I'm doing is worse. And it's extremely frustrating because it always happens to find its way to me <laughs> on my day off, you know, um, and I'm happy to talk about it, but it's just, it's very frustrating that that's now the conversation. I feel like we've come so far and we have so much science since even nine years ago 
that we shouldn't be having these conversations, you know, with, with adults that are smokers that really and truly believe that having that cigarette is safer than switching over to vaping. And that's, that's a direct result of the anti-tobacco movement. It's, it's, you know, it's not the fault of the, of the, the individual, although makes you mad to hear things like that, but it's not really that person's fault in the sense that they're getting yeah. that misinformation from somewhere. And where are they getting it? It's from public the, health. Yeah. Public health. Yeah. It's from the groups that I, that I work with, that I've worked yeah. with my whole career. Um, that's where they're getting it from. They're getting it from CDC. They're getting it from FDA. They're getting it from all the state health departments. Um, and so that's, to me, that's what the real shame is, is, you know, it's not like, you know, not, not to bring up, uh, you know, a lot of other controversial issues, but let's just say, you know, the anti-vax movement or something, you know, where people are getting misinformation from not the government, but from kind of a, a, a conspiracy group of, of sorts, okay? Um, that's bad enough. But for the same thing to be happening, but for the misinformation to be actually coming from the government... You know, like this is a really a conspiracy theory, what the anti-vax movement wishes were the case so that they would be honest and say what they say is actually happening. We we have a vaping, we have an anti-vape conspiracy. Yeah. And it doesn't really make me mad. It frustrates me and it does make me sad. You know, it makes me sad that like that you don't even want to even hear about quitting. It just enables you to keep doing what you're doing and not even, now you don't even have a reason to think about it because now you have this justification in your mind that it's worse. And I, it's why even give it a try? And that makes me sad more than anyone else because, you know, I had such a hard time. I tried everything to quit and nothing worked until I started vaping. And it was on accident, which is a story you hear a lot. Um, but I just, it makes me feel bad for these people that they just don't even have the curiosity because automatically in their mind, they think this is worse or it's the same exact thing. So what's the point? You know, it's, it's interesting because initially what the, you know, what my colleagues were, were, were telling me was, okay, you know, show us the proof, show us the numbers. And if you can show us the numbers, we want to see, you know, how many people have quit using these, these products. And so very early on, of course, we didn't really, we had, you know, what they would call purely anecdotal information. I would not have called it anecdotal, but it's more like a case series or a case study. But anyway, um, we didn't have numbers um, or official numbers. So in 2014, Dr. Brad Radu ran some great really, really solid analyses and found that there were two and a half million former smokers in the U.S. who had quit using e-cigarettes and were continuing to be uh, smoke-free because of e-cigarettes. So in other words, if you, you know, people who, if you took e-cigarettes away, would go back to smoking. Um, and then, you know, at that time they said, oh, well, that's, you know, those that's not high enough. Now we're up to, um, you know, I'm going to be conservative and I just, I'm going to say 6 million. I believe the true number is probably closer to 8 million um, based on Dr. Drew's statistics, but I'm just going to say 6 million um, to be conservative. So now we're up to 6 million. And now they're saying, oh, well, that's too much. You know, it can't be true. So <laughs> it's a catch <laughs> because 
whatever, whenever you tell them, if you tell them, you know, it's a small number, then they'll say, oh, that's not enough. If it's a really big number that that kind of proves the efficacy of the product, then they're like, oh, well, that's, there's no way, you know, that's just not believable. Right. It's unfortunate. You know, I mean, for you too, you know, I mean, when do you think that, you know, tobacco control first lost sight of, of harm reduction? I mean, what do you think really caused that shift? So I think, I think the shift occurred around 2000. Well, there, there were two shifts that occurred, but, but the, the main shift occurred in 2009. And 2009 was when President Obama signed the Tobacco Control Act. And I think what happened is that the tobacco control movement viewed that as a, our ultimate victory. That that was it. We had regulated, we had gotten cigarettes after, you know, 40, 50, 60 years of fighting the tobacco industry. We had brought down the behemoth. We had, we had gotten Congress, um, which was always on the side of big, big tobacco to, to basically completely go against big tobacco and overwhelmingly enact legislation that put cigarettes completely under the FDA's control. They could set safety standards. They could remove the nicotine. Um, they could they could regulate it in any number of ways. They could certainly regulate the advertising and marketing of the products. They could regulate access for youth. And so I think they thought it was over, and that was the end. And so when e-cigarettes came along, and I think they also forgot about smokers. I think that the goal was never really to help smokers. I think that the goal was to beat the industry and smokers were, I think because of the zealotry, um, people lost sight of why, why are we trying to get rid of smoking in the first place? It's to help smokers, you know, it's, (laughs) so I think they lost sight of that. And they essentially, and the way I like to describe it is, well, with Boston marathons today, so it's, it's a good analogy. um, I felt like I was running the marathon with my colleagues and that, um, you know, that there was this kind of arbitrary finish line and we got to it and everyone else stopped and I kept going and I was kept looking back saying, wait a second, I didn't know it was over, right? We still had 45 million smokers in 2009. And so to me, there's no, I mean, I'm not saying, you know, yeah, have a little celebration. Absolutely. You deserve it. But now we have our work to do. And the 45 million smokers is the, is the problem we have to face. And then all of a sudden, it was, I don't think a coincidence, but very quickly in 2009, all of a sudden, the vaping products became widely available. And so where I was in a position to say, wow, this is exactly what we needed and exactly the time we need it, because now we have something for the, finally, for these 45 million smokers, if I feel like much of the rest of the movement was like, okay, this is a disaster because this is going to undermine everything that we just accomplished. Yeah. And that's unfortunate, um, you know, that they felt that way. And it's, 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 it's not, I mean, I know too, like, you know, my doctor, you know, you know, as an example, saw how much I struggled. I had a blood clot in my leg when I was 30 from smoking. So, you know, and that's not normal. People don't get blood clots at 30, you know? So, um, I had to give myself uh, shots in my stomach twice a day. And, you know, I tried every single available option and it just, it didn't work. And, and so then life changes and stress happens. And I moved from New York to South Carolina and it's like, you kind of forget 
why you were trying to quit in the first place. And oh, by the way, cigarettes are cheaper here. So I'm going to smoke more now because I'm stressed out and they're cheaper. (laughs) Bad decisions all around. But you know, I I don't think that that is the case. When you try to quit and something happens or something doesn't work per se, you do go back to smoking. So to find this amazing, you know, avenue that helped me quit on accident. You know, I I mean, I smoked for 17 years. I've been vaping for 11 years and um, my lungs are, I look like I never smoked. My, this is what convinced my doctor. She was blown away, like had to have an MRI for something else. And, you know, I'm like, let's take a look at my lungs, you know, so excited to take a look at my lungs, but it doesn't show that I ever smoked. And I think my doctor was shocked because if the damage was coming from vaping, that would be shown and, and reflected in that you know scan after 11 years of use. So I just I feel really bad for all these people that are smoking that you know could have this that have tried other NRTs you know and I'm pro anything that helps get you off cigarettes. If the patch works then, then great, then use that. You know I know that vaping isn't the only avenue, but it is to me what I've seen the most successful people have the most success and it's almost, it shocks them that they're so successful with it. And I just wish that, you know, more people could be like you and, and, and not be afraid to speak the truth and get the information out there because, you know, I had to convince my doctor uh, over the course of the last three years. And now she's finally starting to recommend vaping to her patients. But of course she's, you know, as long as you get off the nicotine and I'm like, okay, you know, this is close enough, you know, <laughs> like, you know, cause I, for me, you know, I, I got myself down to a three milligram. It's a really small amount of nicotine, but I still find that I, at times, especially stressful times like these, I do still need it. Um, but it, I don't think that it's more harmful for me than having my coffee every morning either, you know, and it's, it's just, it's just disappointing to see what you're saying, you know, is that you, one of the few and when you should be one of the many, I think. Yeah. And I don't think you expect, you know, your doctor went to medical school for four years and spent probably three or four years doing a residency. And you don't expect to be the one whose job it is to then educate the, the doubt your doctor, you know, the fact that you know more than your doctor does. (laughs) It's not too comforting. I mean, um, fortunately it's, it's like, it's not like that with, with, with other medical issues because it'd be a bad state of affairs. Right. I mean, well, it is bad, but this is a bad state of affairs. Um, and again, it comes back to the anti-tobacco groups and the eight health agencies, because where are the doctors getting a lot of this misinformation? You know, they look to agencies like CDC and FDA. Um, and so when CDC comes out and makes statements or FDA or the American Heart Association or the Lung Association, and they're making statements, um, saying that, you know, vaping is just as bad as smoking, then, you know, they believe what they hear because these are reputable, um, organizations or, or they used to be, should be. <laughs> they should be, be. <laughs> and yeah. they, they still have the perception of being reputable. So, you know, it's, it's a shame that, that, um, the phys- physicians themselves have not, um, you know, have been s- largely responsible for spreading so much of this misinformation. Um, but I really, again, think that it comes down to, you know, the major state health state and federal health agencies because that's where they're getting their misinformation from yeah absolutely you know and and recently you did um 
Another recent study, yeah, you and your co-authors reported that the news of the Valley outbreak and related bans pushed those who consumed e-cigarettes to purchase combustible cigarettes. Do you think that policymakers and reporters should have responded differently to a Valley? And, and how do you think, if you think so, how do you think they should have? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think Valley was an example of um, what happens when you analyze a an epidemic or an outbreak um, with politics rather than with science. Um, very clearly, early on in the in the outbreak, um, it was clear to me and and a number of others who were following it closely that this was clearly due to um, Dr. THC products, uh, specifically vitamin vitamin E acetate, um, being used as a as a, a cutting agent for the, the uh, THC to create the look of a much more concentrated product that could sell for, for considerably more. And David Downs at Leafly had essentially done the homework and he had pretty much nailed this down. And I talked to him, I think it was in August of 2009, whatever the year was we had this, 2019. Yeah, yeah 19. <laughs> yeah. And um, I you know, put out on my blog and I said, you know, I'm telling people do not use THC vapes, period. Just don't do it. You're putting yourself at risk. And three months later, the mainstream health groups were still saying, oh, this is due to e-cigarettes. And what, which was very irresponsible because essentially what they were telling people, by telling people, you know, just don't vape at all, Nobody's going to listen to that, and it, it's it's much too broad, you know. Um, and by telling them that, what they were really saying was, we don't have a problem with with cannabis vapes right now, with THC vapes. That's not, you know, that's not an issue that we're that we're concerned about. Um, and so there are there are a lot of people. There are a lot of people who were um, vaping THC who didn't get the message that they should have been getting to stop taking these products. And I'm sure that a lot of deaths or at least a lot of serious illnesses were due to the fact that, um, you know, public health groups never came out and just said, stop using these products. And they also, rather than spending their time banning e-cigarettes, they should have spent their time tracking down the black market and the distribution channels. And they could have put an end to it just like that. Um, it's not that difficult to find the channels for this because it's a very, very specific product. And it probably is like one person or two people, you know, you could, you just got to find those two garages. Where are those two garages that are, that are hoarding these products? And it's gotta be, there's gotta be a way of, 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 of tracing that, you know, we can do a lot of work on trafficking a lot more complex products and we're able to find them. Yeah. And I think instead the focus was kind of shifted on, you know, all vaping is bad instead of actually focusing. And they still haven't clarified, you know, really to this day, um, you know, for the public health or made an announcement that they, you know, should have made, you know, to kind of clarify all of this and, you know, kind of put people's minds at rest, you know. And I saw um, the interview that you had with the doctors um, with <laughs> Meredith, <class>. you know, <laughs> which was great. I think we all were cheering you on because, um 
you know, I think that's part of the problem, you know, is that you have these people that are misinformed and they have no issue coming out and, and sharing that misinformation with anyone and everyone that will listen to it. I mean, uh, these are the groups that still try to push saying epidemic when, when, you know, we've confirmed with Dr. Brian King, there is no epidemic. Um, so it's, it's really frustrating. You know, I really wish that they would just make it clear and, and start to separate the issue. You know, anytime you have, and it, and it just goes to show you that anytime you have a prohibition of sorts, you know, where you legalize something in one state and a neighboring state is, is, you know, prohibited to have this, you're going to get a black market and you're going to get bad, you know, bad stuff and you're going to get sick from it. It is a possibility. And I think that this is the issue that is now being created by the prohibition of all of these, products that, you know, we wanted to be regulated. We did. I think there's this misconception that the industry doesn't want regulation. We want fair regulation. We want honest regulation. Um, and that's not what we're getting. And now we're seeing this black market pop up of, of all of these vaping products. And I don't think that that would have happened if we had just had a fair approval process where we could actually get through the door, you know, and, and, and we were willing to do anything that the FDA wants us to do to stay on the market to help our customers, but it's just has it's been an uphill battle. Um, you know, you know, you're absolutely right. I remember back in 2011, sitting down with um, I think it was with Lou Williams and and Link Williams um, with uh, AMSA, and just basically going over the standards that they wanted to to propose, which were incredibly um, stringent. And had we adopted those standards, had the government adopted those standards back then, instead of trying to get rid of the products, you know, we would have averted so many of these different issues, batteries exploding and, you know, um, other issues like that. So it's really a shame. The industry, here was an example of where the industry was actually desperate to be regulated, yet we failed to do that. The government failed to do that. You know, it's hard enough when, you know, an industry doesn't want to be regulated and then they fight regulators. But here they were, you know, at the table urging them, please. Um, you know, a, a very telling, I think a very telling fact is that since 2009, the FDA has had the authority, as I mentioned earlier, to set any number of product standards, safety product standards um, for tobacco products. They could um, set the levels of any particular constituent in the product that they want. They could get rid of all the additives in the product. They could get rid of essentially all the nicotine in the product, at least to bring it down to levels below uh, addiction level that would maintain addiction. And so it's been, what, 14 years and the industry has failed, I'm sorry, the FDA has failed to issue a single regulation, a single product standard for cigarettes, which are the most toxic substance that's widely used as a recreational product. But they have set not so much a safety standard as I think a kind of regulation for electronic cigarettes, um, basically banning flavors in those products and without without going through a regulatory process we can talk about that there's a legal i think some legal uh implications of that but 
essentially they've they've issued a rule without actually issuing a rule that we're banning flavored electronic cigarette products. Um, so so how crazy is that? You have a product killing still 350,000 people a year, and you've had 14 years to set a safety standard, and they haven't done a single thing. The industry has had free reign, yet now you want to try to sell a product that's actually going to get people off those cigarettes and save their lives, and you have to go through not only just incredibly burdensome, expensive applications, um, but applications where you're given no guidance, there's no standards, there's no hints as to what needs to be in the application or not, and where they make up the rules as they go along, where they make up the rules after you submit the application, then they decide, okay, well, here's how we're going to play the game. You know, that's ridiculous. That's ridiculous. But meanwhile, you know, if if you're Marlboro or Camel or Newport, you just keep selling your product. You don't have to do a single thing. You have to make no demonstration that your product has even done one thing to try yeah. to make it just a little bit safer. Correct. Yeah. And I think too, I mean, it's, you know, wiping flavors off the market, I mean, wipes out the entire industry because we're not selling tobacco flavors. I mean, I, I started on a tobacco flavor. I think I stayed on it for about two weeks and then my sense of smell really started to come back. My taste buds started to change and I was like, I don't like how this tastes anymore. So I tried a few other tobaccos, a vanilla tobacco and a cherry tobacco, and I didn't like those either. And so I tried a strawberry and I was like, this is amazing. And it was almost like a gift. This is my reward for stopping smoking. Now I can taste this and it tastes good. And now this is what's helping me. And honestly, it, it almost made it fun for me as an adult that was quitting smoking. Um, but it was, it kept me from straying because every time I felt like I was getting sick of that flavor, I could go in and try another flavor, change the whole experience for me, and then kind of set me back on course, which took away the, you know, the option of me even going back to smoking. And so I always felt like cigarettes, you know, getting away from cigarettes and being able to use flavors, that's a gift. And, and, and they don't see it like that. They don't, for some reason, they don't see that adults like flavors, they like it in alcohol. They like it in dessert. They like it in food. They don't, not in vaping though. <laughs> so, and it's really hard to understand that. It's, you know, this is an area where they just have not listened to or talked to actual vapors. Um, one of the things that I did, the the earliest thing I did, um, when I'll, you know, let me actually be very honest with, with everyone because people probably don't know this, but when Electronic cigarettes came first came onto the market um, around 2007, and when I first became aware of them, which was probably I think late in 2008, closer to 2009, um, I'll be very honest. My first reaction was, "Oh no, not this again! Big tobacco! What a what a ploy!" I said, "That's brilliant. They've now come up with you know, and they had a history of this. They had come out with the Accord product. Philip Morris had put out the Accord plot product, and I think RJR came out with an Eclipse product, um, which was kind of a heat not burn type thing. And they were claiming this is a lot safer. Um, probably it was m- maybe marginally safer, but not like e-cigarettes. You know, it, it was it was only marginally better, and and it was very mis- their advertising was very, very misleading. So I thought, okay, this is brilliant. They've come out with a product that is going to deliver tobacco through this other mechanism. And so um, the very first thing I did 
was to start talking to vapers. When I, when, once I heard, oh, a lot of people saying, oh, you know, I'm having great success, is I actually talked to people, real people who were using the products. Yeah. <laughs> and I got their stories and um, I found out what they were vaping. And anytime I saw someone vaping, you know, I'd walk up to somebody in the, in the middle of the street and I'd say, hey, you know, just curious, can you tell me about, you know, what your experience is? And I just heard the same thing to every single person. I don't think I heard anything other than these things saved my life. You know, I've been smoking for many, many years. Nothing worked. I tried these. They worked. And I haven't had a cigarette since. Um, and as I went to a lot of e-cigarette conventions, and you know, I, again, had a chance to really, at that point, talk to a lot of people. And then we started doing scientific research and doing surveys and talking, you know, getting thousands and thousands of, of responses and doing it in a scientific way. Um, and that just confirmed what we already knew from, from the, the so-called anecdotes. Um, <laughs> but I think that's the difference. I don't, I think that one of the differences is that a lot of these folks have never actually taken the time to talk to vapors and to ask them about their experiences and to listen. You know, we do a lot of talking in public health. We tell people what to do. And I think, we're just not used to listening. And um, that was the difference for me because it was after listening and after looking at the scientific data um, that I came to realize, okay, whoa, 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 this is totally different. This is completely different than what the tobacco industry is doing. The tobacco industry has nothing to do with this. And, you know, and I changed my mind. I did what I do when I see data that doesn't match with what my, what my thinking is, my initial thinking. Um, cause I was as biased as anyone else in the anti-smoking movement when it, when it came out, you know, I'll be the first to admit it. Um, but when I saw that the data did not support what people were saying or what I, what I believed to be true, I changed my mind to accord with the data and with what I heard from, from the vapors, the other organizations pretty much unilaterally, not what there's a few exceptions, but, but, the overwhelming majority of organizations um, just kept with their kind of pre-existing hypothesis and, and haven't budged even to, even to today. Yeah. You know, yeah. Well, I was yeah. going to mention one of the things when you were talking about E-Valley and, and not correcting it, one of the yeah. things we actually did in that study that we just published was we looked at the current, this is 2020. Well, it was probably in 2022 because it was just published, but we looked at the 2022 websites of all 50 state health departments to see what they're saying today about E-Valley and less than half are still telling the, less than half are telling the truth. I guess I should say more than half are still misleading people about it. It, it, They're not willing to even just put in a a simple statement saying, you know, E-Valley was found to be, a result of contaminated THC cartridges. They're not even right. willing to say that. Right. Um, they're not willing to admit that they were wrong. And that's a dangerous, dangerous uh, thing. Extremely, for, extremely dangerous. Yeah. Yes. Because a lot of people don't even think about THC vapes when they think about it. They just think about nicotine vapes. They're not even taking that into the equation because that it, it was so much focus was just put on vaping. And a lot of people view vaping as just nicotine vaping. So, and honestly, how many people do you know that buy their products from the black market are listening to what public health has to say in the first place? 
So in, in, in reality, it's, it's more dangerous for everybody that the, you know, it's not clarified because they're going to continue to use these things and, and continue to and unfortunately get sick. And, and whose fault is that at the end of the day? I, I want to share this story that um, happened to me when I was testifying in Brookline. So Brookline, um, just outside of Boston, uh, is uh, they were the council had proposed an ordinance to ban the sale of all flavored electronic cigarettes. And I went to the the hearing prior to the the ordinance being considered. And there was a doctor, I won't mention names, but there, there was a mm-hmm. doctor at the hearing who accused me of being a tobacco, of a vaping industry shill um, and accused me of taking money from the vaping industry. This happened to be a colleague of mine who I had worked in the past with. I actually published a paper with him on secondhand smoke and it's dangerous. Oh, wow. Wow. Um, so it was a direct colleague, right? Not, not just like somebody who knew me, you know, we had actually written a paper together, published a paper together. Um, and someone who I liked very much and had a good relationship with. So I wrote him a note saying, uh, an email saying his name and then saying, you know, I don't understand, where do you get this information? What are you, why are you telling people that I'm getting paid by the vaping industry? And so he wrote me a note back and I was expecting it to say, oh, I'm really sorry. You know, I, I, I just, I made a mistake or whatever. Um, instead it said, uh, it said, do you, you take money from the vaping industry? (laughs) And I said, why didn't you ask me that question before you publicly accused me of doing it? You know, that would have been the appropriate time to ask me. Right. Right. (laughs) Not after you've already made the accusation. (laughs) And so I wrote, you know, I wrote back and I said, of course not. I, I have not taken any money as I testified in my testimony. I said, I prefaced my testimony. So it's, it's, it's just, um, it, it's insane. You know, it's, it's, um, I think, I think to me that the thing that is the, is maybe we can add this kind of as a fifth reason for what, for this misinformation. And that's just the, the hubris of not being willing to say, we made a mistake because I think in order for the groups to, to be honest today, they would have to admit that they made a mistake in the past. And I just don't think they have it in it in them to do that. I think I honestly don't think they have it in them to do that. Um, it's, it's something that, that is very hard to do, you know, just admit you're, you're, you're wrong yeah. for an organization, you know I mean? Um, for me, I, you know, I readily admit it. I was, I made a mistake. Yeah, of course I made a mistake. Yeah. But I think for these groups, um, it is incredibly difficult for them to come out and just say, look, we made a mistake. We'd like to correct it. Here's the facts. And none of them, almost none of them are willing to do that. I think too, I mean, even if every single one of them came out and corrected what they've been saying, I don't even know if they could fix the damage that's been done because even when statements do sometimes very rarely change, it still doesn't, the general consensus, the general belief by, you know, the population at this point is that it's, it's just as dangerous as smoking cigarettes. And it's really unfortunate that we've gotten to this point where, 
we can have an interview with, with Dr. King and he can say there's no epidemic and, and you can see a bunch of, you know, organizations say, well, we're still going to use it because it's effective. And it's like, but it's not true. So, you know, you're, you're, you're just kind of doubling down on your bad decision making at this point. Um, and it's really frustrating, you know, especially to get him to say, you know, there is no epidemic and then to have people still say, well, we're going to say that anyway. It's, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, that's kind of as close as anyone has come to, to kind of making a correction. Um, and I have to say that of all the groups that I've contacted, I mean, I've contacted hundreds of groups saying, you know, just pointing out this made a mistake. I would say I can probably think of two that have actually written back and said, gee, thank you so much for the, you know, for correcting us. We, we fixed it, you know, two out of hundreds. That's a really sad situation. That's really sad. Yeah. Yeah. Should be the opposite. Should be two that didn't correct exactly. it. <laughs> Not only two that did. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so I wasn't sure, I thought we had some, uh, questions or we were going to answer some live questions, um, from Twitter, but I don't see anything pop up. Um, let me see if there's anything else we didn't cover here. Um, so, I mean, my last question I had for you was, you know, let's say that you were running the FDA's CTP, which would be amazing. <laughs> what would you change about the vaping policy in the U S? Oh my God. Okay. So. How, you know, I can tell you that had I been running the CTP um, on day one, well, I won't say day one because there's a learning curve even for me, but I, let's say by 2009, by late 2009, um, I would have issued a set of safety standards for electronic cigarettes. That's how I would have regulated the product. Um, I would have, number one, I, and, and they would look very similar to what to what um, um, the AMSA's, uh, you know, from from 2011, what their proposed regulations would lo look like. Um, but the main components would be things like battery safety, um, metal integrity, making sure that you don't have soldered pieces or, of metal that are flaking off. Um, probably having. Um, regulation, regulating some additives, but a very, very small number. Um, and, um, probably having some temperature rules or, or regulations, um, to ensure that overheating isn't occurring. Cause it's really the, the univer uniformly when the unwanted contaminants are present in vaping products, they're invariably there because the liquid got heated to too high a temperature. Um, and in fact, that's how a lot of these studies are done that have shown that there are, you know, all these chemicals and unwanted chemicals in there. What they do is they basically char the device. Yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, if you charcoal anything to a complete, you know, black state, you know, you're going to get unwanted things. in some cases with no liquid even in it <laughs> exactly exactly yeah. <laughs> and so they were they were doing that and so you know so i would have had uh regulations on that probably some 
some advertising and marketing restrictions so that we wouldn't have some of these ridiculous ads that have, uh, you know, been clearly targeted towards young people. Um, and so that's how I would have done it, you know, just having direct regulations, being transparent and telling the companies exactly what they have to do. There would have been no guessing games. You know, here's what you have to have to do. Your battery has to be certified under the, you know, this, this, this standard. And so you know what you need to do. Um, what I wouldn't have done, I mean, it, it's, it is unfathomable to me, the approach that the FDA did take. I mean, to basically say the way we're going to regulate. So first of all, for many, many, many years, they didn't regulate the product. So there were exploding batteries. There were overheated cartridges. Um, there were brands of e-liquids that did have excessive rates of things like acid aldehyde, um, which could have been easily prevented um, just with minor temperature regulations or, or overcharging protection. You know, nothing complicated, nothing that wasn't already on the market. That technology was already on the market. You know, So nothing I, I would have required would have required new technology that didn't exist. Um, and so... You know, their fir the first problem was that they let many years go by letting people die or get severely injured because of, you know, some of these problems. And then the second problem is when they did decide to regulate them, the way they decided to regulate them was to just ban pretty much 99.9% .9 of the products rather than actually set safety standards for them. And, you know, every other consumer product, there's no other consumer product that I can think of that is regulated by banning most, if if not all the, you know, well, I mean, unless there's a complete ban, I'm not sure if any product <laughs> right. that's regulated by banning 99.9% .9 of the products with the 0.1% that's allowed being allowed on an arbitrary basis, because you think that adults shouldn't like cherry. I mean, that's essentially what's happened. Right. is the FDA has decided to decimate the market and remove 99.9% of the products because they personally, uh, you know, don't appreciate the facts that an adult, you know, might like cherry. I mean, have they ever been to an ice cream store? Right. You know? That's, yeah. <laughs> have they ever seen me in an ice cream store? <laughs> <laughs> right. That's what I mean. How boring would life be without flavors? And, and like I said, finally getting over that hump of being addicted to cigarettes and having that that joy of being able to taste things not having to put as much salt on your food so many things kind of open up for you when you stop smoking and you don't want that taste anymore you know anything that reminds me of a cigarette i don't want it but i still want the hand to mouth honestly i could probably do it in a zero with no problem and i have done it in a zero with no problem but it's just, it's that hand-to-mouth action, and I don't want to taste something that's reminding me of something that I used to be addicted to. I would much rather enjoy this amazing flavor or come in to a store and say, oh, there's these new flavors. Oh, I can't wait to try these. Like, you know, this is something I can use for the next couple of weeks until I come back again. It's the fun part of it, regardless of, you know, if you're 89 years old or 43 years old like me, like, that, you know, th these flavors make it fun. And they do, I think, also have an effect on how effective they are. And just to be very, very, very clear, there is there is published scientific evidence that non that, that, sorry that flavored vaping products um, are much more effective in getting people to quit and to maintain quitting 
than than uh, tobacco flavored vapes. So it's these are decisions that are anti public health. They're contrary to public health, and they're going to hurt the public health um, in the long run, not help it. Yeah, I think I've seen it firsthand. I see a lot more people smoking just day to day, and it's. It's really upsetting because, you know, it's people that I've, I've seen and I've helped when I worked in the storefront, you know, helping people, you know, quit every day when I first started with the company I work for. That was my job. I ran the busiest store. I helped people quit all day long. And I see some of them going back to smoking cigarettes and it, it, it really hurts me. It breaks my heart to see that, that this is where we're at, you know, and it, it shouldn't be, you know, and there, there, we should see more people vaping, more people quitting smoking. And also more people quitting vaping if that's what they want to do, if they've re- reached that, you know, goal. But I mean, seeing more people smoking, especially seeing people that I've helped quit is just makes me want to fight that much harder for these alternatives because it, it really is, it is harming public health. Absolutely. Um, and just to, just to make sure I get two things in before we, yeah. we, we yeah. close, um, just to be on a, to end kind of on a little more, more positive note. Um, so the first is that I think that what the FDA is doing is really constitutionally shaky because in order to promulgate a rule, the, I mean, the FDA certainly has the, the right to set safety standards, but to do that, they have to set a rule. And that means it has to be published in the federal register in advance. You have to allow public comment and all that. Um, what they've done essentially, I think, is they've essentially set a rule that we're banning all flavors without actually promulgating that rule, but they're executing it through the back door, through the PMTA process, without ever having actually said uh, in any guidance, you can't have flavors. You know, right. It would have been very easy for them to just you know, set, set a rule. They've had, tw- what, 14 years. Um, they could have just said that. I mean, I'm, I'm not saying that would have been a good idea, but I'm just saying they could have done that. And so right. for, I think there's constitutional issues. Um, and I know that's being challenged. And I, my personal feeling is that's a, that's a serious challenge. Um, the second thing I guess I want to say is that, you know, I, I have always viewed, I have always viewed vapors as being um, the best anti-smoking advocates out there. And I've always viewed vape shops as being essentially smoking cessation clinics. I mean, I think that's essentially how it operates because what could be better to help someone quit than to have someone who's been through the process, has succeeded, knows the ins and outs, and can help guide you as to, okay, what flavor should you try? What... And I mean, it's a beautiful setup for you couldn't devise a better situation for a smoking cessation clinic than to have a vape shop where you have all these different flavors and all these different products. And it's just, you're wowed by, wow, look at all these different choices. I mean, just because part of the problem with quitting is that, you know, there's no choice. So you go into the doctor, they say, okay, well, here's a nicotine patch. That's the only, you don't have any decision-making, um, so I think part of the process of decision making is you're taking control, and that means you're taking control of your of your life, and that is a huge part of the the experience. So, what troubles me, one of the things that troubles me in in decimating the market is the fact that so many vape shops are unfortunately not going to withstand this these changes, and um, even in Massachusetts when we had what turned out to be a temporary ban on 
uh, during Valley on e-cigarettes sales. Um, unfortunately, a lot of vape shops ended up closing and a lot of them couldn't come back because they had no, there, there was no more capital. And so um, that's a tragedy to me. That's like defunding smoking, yeah. a smoking cessation clinic. Um, and the story, you know, in, in these vaping shops is the same. Every single one I went to story after story is the same. You know, I used to smoke. And so the, the personal experience that they have, you can't get that. You can't get that at the doctor's office, right? No. You, you don't go to the doctor and the doc, you know, typically the doctor's not going to say, oh yeah, well I used to smoke and here's how I got up. But you go to a vape shop and automatically you have a success story and somebody who can lead you through all. So that is an ideal situation. Um, and I'm really grateful to all vapors out there because they, they're the ones who've educated the public. They're the ones who educated me. They're the ones who have been the greatest advocates for smoking cessation. And that has been, for me, that's been the one consolation over the, the years is it's been very disillusioning and very frustrating. Um, but the one thing that's been a constant, um, you know, reassuring and just, and just kind of kept me going has been the fact that vapors have taken it into their own hands and they're doing the education, they're correcting the misinformation, they're um, encouraging people to quit, they're emphasizing the value of, of harm reduction. You know, public health apparently is not going to do it, but the vaping advocates are. And as long as, as you all are all out there continuing to speak and speak loudly, I think we're going to be okay. Despite everything the government is doing, I think, you know, where there's a will, there's a way, and there and and people will will find a way to keep this going. Yeah, well, I hope you're right. You know, from your lips to God's ears, I'm 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 on board with you, and I'm not going anywhere. And I know everybody else is definitely not going anywhere. I mean, I mean, everybody that works for you know um, the company that I work for, they're all former former smokers. They all quit, and then they got passionate about it because they were like, I cannot believe how how this worked for me. They're shocked at how successful they were. So. I have to agree with you. I think that, you know, as long as, you know, we are around to tell our stories, I think that, you know, there's, there's always going to be some hope and I have to believe that in the end science wins. I hope so. You know, we always say that. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, my hope is that eventually the science is just going to become undeniable and they're just not going to be able to, to lie anymore. People are yeah. going to just leave at them. I hope it gets to that point. I hope so too. Before it does too much damage to, you know, the fact that a lot of people aren't listening to anything that public health has to say anymore because of, of this one particular instance. And I think that they really need to take that into consideration as well, because there's a lot of misinformation out there, like we were talking about earlier. And, and a lot of that stems from, if you're lying to me about this, you could be lying to me about everything. And that's really not a good place for public health to be. Absolutely. You know, the thing that we, and I've written about this and I've said, you know, the thing that we need and that we treasure the most is our credibility. And yeah. once we lose that, we lose everything because maybe it's not the issues, maybe it's not vaping, maybe it's COVID, maybe it's some other disaster. Yeah. That so, yeah. We yeah. need people to listen to public health yeah. authorities. And, and once you lose that, that trust, it's, it's really gone forever. And so yeah. this is going to lead to a lot more disasters beyond simply more people smoking. Right. Yeah. This isn't a harmless fly. That's for sure. I really, really appreciate you taking the time to be with us today and, and appreciate everything you've done for us. I mean, I think 
you know, you've been, uh, you know, kind of a beacon of hope for us and, and, and speaking out against when, you know, these lies when most people wouldn't, um, you know, for obvious reasons, <laughs> unfortunately, but we really do truly appreciate everything you've done. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. It was really, I enjoyed the conversation so much. Anytime. <laughs> My, Anytime. Pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you so much, thank, doctor. Thank you so much. <laughs> we'll talk soon. Okay, All right. Take you take care. Thank you.